Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Stephanie Marutis and Emily Previty of Cuvenda Media. Cuvenda is a nonprofit podcast production company that produces narratives for social change. Stephanie is the founder and executive producer. Emily is a data journalist and producer. Together, they are the co-creators of their latest project, Obscured. Obscured covers critical issues that are missed because they are complex, overshadowed, and unfold out of the public eye. The most recent project in that series is From Words to Weapons, about police trauma survivors. Please join me for my conversation with Stephanie and Emily. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for joining me. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us on, Mark. Hi, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having us. So we start where we start with everybody that comes on this podcast. What are your journalism origin stories? Sure. After college, I had a day job and I started volunteering with a Greek community radio station in New York City. And I had the opportunity to be a reporter, a producer, and and the host of a community affairs show for the Greek diaspora. And I totally loved it. I loved it more than my day job and then decided to make the switch to becoming a public radio reporter. A daunting task, but it, it all worked out. So I'm very lucky and feel grateful. Basically, I have been writing ever since I was a kid, and I worked for WXPN, which is the public radio station in Philadelphia that's music-focused, or one of them, and it's affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania, where I went to undergrad. Um, and I, They are music-focused, but I was working for their news program. And I, I mean, I was willing to get up at five o'clock in the morning during college to do it, and that certainly said something to me. And then just during that time, becoming a little more politically aware and it just kind of sticking with it, I guess, from from there on out, essentially. Is there anything in either of your family backgrounds or heritage that lends itself to storytelling? I would say yes. I identify as a Greek American and Greek on both sides. And I have grandparents who were born in Greece. I have grandparents who were born here. I have a grandparent who was born here, raised in Greece. And I would say in my family, a lot of time spent together was sitting around the table hearing stories and especially my dad's mother I used to spend a lot of time with her especially in the summers and she'd either have her her, her siblings over or her friends over or I'd go to some coffee shop with her just being this eight-year-old there eating pie and listening to the grown-ups talk and so that was something I really grew up with and I guess it it bode well for some radio reporting and listening and not responding and just being able to to hear stories. And so, yeah, my heritage and background and family, I don't think figure in quite as strongly as for Stephanie, but my parents and grandparents certainly instilled a love of reading. And that is foundational to the writing and learning involved in our profession, to the career choice and my paternal grandparents in particular, I remember, were talking politics with me on a pretty nuanced and local level from a young age, and they maybe missed their calling as gadflies, 
but that certainly played into it as well. And I should add that my mother is a retired print journalist. And so newspapers were part of my growing up and certainly reading a newspaper every day and still do. So once I got into public radio, it was a different medium, but it was fun to talk shop with my mom. What did she cover? She covered until she, when she retired, she was covering business. She worked for the Baltimore Sun as a deputy business editor. And she had been a writer. She wrote a consumer column when I was younger. And then she worked way back for the News American, which was a Hearst newspaper. So she worked in Baltimore as during her newspaper career. So you've both had a number of career stops. What were the turning point moments that got you thinking not just about podcast production, but specifically that this kind of podcast production, the kind that you're doing now, was the right thing for you? So when I started in public radio, like I mentioned, it, it wasn't that easy. I mean, I did not go to journalism school. And so a lot of this was self-taught and taking the experience I had at the community radio station and then getting my training in the NPR affiliate newsrooms at WYPR in Baltimore and, and WHYY in Philadelphia and doing freelance assignments. And I just did what I could to learn and hone the craft, going to workshops and reading as much as possible and reading other journalists' work. And I was fortunate to have several editors who I think shaped my kind of reporting path about how politics about how public policy affects people's lives. And they, they mentored me and they were really excellent thought partners in this type of reporting. And besides that, I read a lot of oral histories as well. I, I have done some oral history projects outside of journalism. And that really, I think, helped me think about how to talk to people about their lives and learning about the impact of certain issues on their lives. And after spending about a decade working in public radio, I was starting to feel like this might not be the right fit anymore. And during that time, I took a break and immersed myself further in studying oral history. And I was lucky enough to be a summer institute fellow at Columbia University's Center for Oral History. They have a, a research program called Insight, and the focus was on narrating population health, and it looked at oral history and disparity and social change. And, and that fellowship just energized me, and that's what led to the idea for Kuvenda Media to produce narratives for social change. And I would say that that is how I got to this point, and Emily can respond on the back end. Yeah, so the impetus for me getting into journalism was to do accountability work in large part, and that tends to be pretty aligned with, as Stephanie described it. So right away, really, and the same with podcasting, I, it seemed to me when I was in college like that was going to be the next frontier for audio journalism, and I started in radio, as I mentioned, um, relatively briefly, and then switched to newspapers for several years, almost a decade. And in the meantime, it was in the back of my mind that I wanted to get back into radio and into podcasting at some point and was certainly still getting a lot of my news via audio and I still do. And just was a big believer in the medium for its convenience and the power that audio can have as far as 
establishing connection and intimacy with the audience and really harnessing sound to convey scene to an audience. And that's really only grown for me over time, that belief in the passion for audio as a medium and journalism focused on public policy and accountability. Steward is your current big project for the two of you. How do you come up with your project ideas? How does one like this come about? It depends on the project, of course, and whether it grows out of beat reporting and is sort of intertwined with that, whether you're solo or working as part of a team. Something that can be consistent for me, I work through data sets just because I'm curious and I actually find that process quite centering. And the findings raise questions usually, and that can end up being the foundation of a project directly or indirectly. In this case, we had an idea of what the project would be, but not necessarily what the topic would would be or what we would focus on. And that got started out of a conversation that was for a different project entirely. So that can happen too. Yeah. Like Emily, one project leads to another project. And that's often been the case of some of the work that Kuvenda Media has done. And I think a lot of times project ideas also just come from talking with sources frequently and just they have their they have their thumb on what's what's going on and trends to look for and so keeping those lines of communication open with sources has been a great way and reading hearing a story on that on that particular issue and thinking about is there another angle there and i would say hearing other podcasts that are on a topic or books. Definitely love sort of immersing in a project idea that way as well. Something like From Words to Weapons certainly comes. There are some stories uh, that have come about that you're essentially doing the continuation thereof, which we'll, we'll get to. And for episode one of that, From Words to Weapons within the Obscured series, he focused on the Massachusetts case of Jimmy Warren, a kid from Massachusetts who had a gun possession conviction overturned in 2016. He had fled police who had chased him, even though they didn't have reasonable suspicion to stop him. How did the idea for this come about? So while doing pre-reporting and early research for the series, I talked to a capital defense attorney. Her name is Jennifer Merrigan, and it was just kind of, it was a background conversation. And I asked her if she knew about any cases or point me to any cases that dealt mainly with questions of emotional or psychological effects that were not necessarily occurring alongside physical injury that was tied to the incident. And she mentioned that case, the case, Jimmy Warren's case. And we started with his story in part because it got national headlines, but also that it was like a strong potential entry point for listeners because it really gets to the ubiquity of law enforcement trauma, at least we hope it established that. And you mentioned that he hadn't spoken publicly. How did you find him? So first I talked to one of the attorneys on the case who handled the appeal and the case at the stage where it went before the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. His name is Nelson Lobbins, and he mentioned that he had never met Jimmy. I had also noticed that in some of the stories, you know, you referenced he had never been interviewed, and to me that was unusual to see that the stories 
didn't even reference that they had tried to reach Jimmy, at least the ones that I came across, or he was unavailable. So all of those things were unusual to me in my experience as a journalist. His trial attorney remembered him. She hadn't been in touch with him in some time. So it was just like cross-referencing public records, Facebook, LinkedIn, ultimately came across email addresses for him and an ex-girlfriend he was still in touch with and reached out by email initially. And he agreed to a short phone conversation and was seemed like he wanted to talk about it. I mean, he said he was up for it right away. I mean, I think with things like this, at least my style is I'm not really wanting to like pressure someone to talk about something like this in this scenario. It's like, if they want to be great and if not, that's also fine. So he, yeah, he was very much up for it. And we pretty much started talking about logistics for me to come to Boston right away. And how did the different elements of an episode like this come together? I had already done those initial conversations with his attorneys, and then I went to Boston. I had a long interview with him. And in the meantime, was wondering about the impact of the case, where it had been cited, started pulling those cases. And with the help of our fact checker, Chelsea Zhu, and it was clear to me pretty much right away that a sh- we couldn't really do like a straightforward analysis in the way that I had hoped. But I did reach out to pretty much ev- as many of the attorneys as I could that had cited Jimmy's cases and had background conversations with them. Then a couple of those were recorded for the episode. Also did try multiple channels to get a law enforcement perspective on the impact of the case, but that wasn't really successful. So. That's the general sketch of the sourcing um, piece of it. And how do you make it compelling for the listener? For this series, we've started with the narrative. I think I talked to Jimmy for like around two hours or something in a recording studio in Boston and just kind of started with that and tried to condense it and shape it really for internal purposes initially into a narrative that Stephanie or our editor on the project, Diane Hodson, could listen to and understand what Jimmy's story was about. And that's sort of a starting point. It kind of gets at the best audio. Jimmy's a fantastic storyteller. We had almost, almost too much to work with. That's step one. And then stories are about power, keeping really keeping that in mind, especially with this subject when figuring out what the context is and then obviously how does this affect people that you know that's a way to (laughs) make people find it relevant so yeah so those are the some of the big ideas guiding my process so in episode three you make it compelling right away you talk about the post-incarceration life of chester holman who had been wrongfully convicted of murder served more than 20 years in prison and the very first story that he tells is talking about experiencing automatic toilet flushing for the first time on the way home from the prison we stopped at, i think it was mcdonald's or burger king anyway, it was a fast food restaurant and i went into the bathroom and i used the bathroom and then i'm looking for the thing to flush the toilet and I couldn't find it and I'm touching this urinal I'm squeezing underneath, underneath the bottom and it, you know I'm just touching this nasty urinal trying to look for a button like it was a secret button or something and then my uncle came in and he was on the other side of the wall and he just said walk away and then when I backed up 
the thing flushed. And I said to myself as I'm back, and I just started crying in the bathroom. I said, if I can't flush a toilet out here, how am I going to survive if I can't flush the toilet? And just process-wise, I'm curious. I think it's a good teaching point. Uh, how did you get that quote? Like, what did you ask that got that quote? So I saw that you had mentioned that you might ask this, and I didn't recall exactly it. And and I think Stephanie is like this too. Is you send you want to send some topics or let someone know what to expect. But I definitely, I definitely try more to have conversations with people rather than fire questions at them. Although certainly I've got notes and things that I I need to make sure that I get or bear in mind. You really end up getting into a conversation. I find most often. So talking about the fact that people who have life sentences just don't get the same investment of attention, time, resources as other prisoners who are thinking they're likely to get out or potentially could go back to their community at some point. And then he said something along the lines of until it was clear that he very likely was going to be exonerated Netflix had been coming in to do a documentary episode about him and the story kind of leading up to his exoneration. As you mentioned, we tried to focus it, picking up where that left off. But he, yeah, so he he had mentioned that. And I said, well, what kinds of things did, what was that minimal preparation that you're referencing? Like, what did, what was that like? And it was picking up on that question, but very quickly he kind of got to, he sort of started walking through what happened when he left. And so it was just kind of letting him talk, basically. Being a good listener, certainly. And I should note, this was for an episode on how the system handles people who were exonerated rather than people who finished their sentences. How do you interview someone who's been through what both he and Jimmy have been through, being sensitive to what they've seen and experienced while getting the information you need? Much of what I'm going to say is overlapping our basic tenets, principles of trauma-informed journalism. Preparation is key. You you don't want to basically be like fact-checking somebody about times and dates and things like that when they're trying to just talk to you how they might've been feeling and what their memory, what their memories are. And so doing as much of that research as you can upfront with primary sources and things is super helpful. And just putting as much power and control over the meeting and the interview as you can. It's, it's a cl- collaborative thing and treating it like that and making it convenient and comfortable for them as far as when and where, making sure you give yourself plenty of time, that it's in a quiet private space, um, taking breaks, going slowly. And I usually bringing bringing water for everybody because you're going to be there for a while, tissues, stuff like that. And to let them know what to expect generally, to ask them if they want questions in advance, do they want prompts? Some people do, some people don't. and just really making it clear that if there's something that comes up that they don't want to talk about, that's fine. And again, at the outset, not pushing the interview, just seeing if they would be willing to do it. And then afterwards, 
staying in touch, obviously thanking them for being willing to take the time to talk about something, for trusting you with an experience that was so difficult, and then just staying in touch, staying in touch beyond that to see how they're doing and to communicate with them and keep them updated or in the loop on when they can expect the story to come out. So those are some of the things that I do that we do. Police trauma is an intense subject. And I'm curious for both of you, from both of you, just what it's like to listen to, to this is just like a human, in addition to trying to report and, and create documentaries and docuseries about it. I mean, I would say briefly that as a human, it does make me feel outraged that we aren't further along on this issue, having covered it before, cell phones were as ubiquitous as they are now, and then seeing some of the um, really just traumatic and horrifying incidents that have been captured and, and documented in real time sometimes, and just that, the, that there hasn't been more progress on police reform and supporting survivors of law enforcement trauma. That, so that's, I mean, as a human, that's kind of how I, I react briefly. I could talk about that for a while, but that's where I'll, I'll leave it. I can add to what Emily said just now and also previously about, you know, how it is to interact with people who've experienced this and uh, it's being human and, you know, being there and uh, yeah, taking time and processing uh, with the person you're interviewing. Um, I think a lot of times as journalists, uh, we can detach and, you know, put the emotions to the side. And in some cases we have to, um, it's hard not to, you know, for it to not catch up with you, um, later, um, often. And I do think that as we do obscured, why we're doing obscured, uh, we want to tell underreported stories that don't get the attention they deserve. And, even though we hear a lot about police trauma and police brutality and excessive force and the you know tragic deaths that result from this, uh, the angle of covering law enforcement trauma survivors and what kind of supports are in place is not a story that is well known. Uh, so I think that keeps us you know focused on being able to report on these topics because we know that. And we hope that we are adding something new to the conversation and understanding about how these issues play out. What are some of the behind the scenes things that you're constantly thinking about as these are being produced? And I'm thinking, I listened to three of the episodes and the music for each was essentially fit the mood of what you were talking about. I thought very much so. I'm curious, just process-wise, I like talking process about that. I definitely have to give credit to our composer, Malik Calhoun, for providing us with, I felt it was just the right mix of moods and music that you can really hear a consistency in style, too. And he, honestly, is relatively early on in his career and with minimal instruction or input from from us, it seemed like he was, he was able to do that. So that is so much to his credit. And apart from the, the music, I would say, and Stephanie, you know, I mean, we, we do 
sometimes in early drafts have notes, user cues, but those are added and certainly tweaked as we each are listening to draft mixes. Noting audio quality and integrity issues, of course, I would say for me personally, I find myself making sure to note where my mind wanders when listening, especially in the earlier drafts. And then I find that I happen to notice where more or less space, where we might need more or less space between ideas for cadence, for emphasis, for audience engagement, and things like that. No, I was going to say essentially to allow the listener to process what they've heard. Exactly. And, you know, I would add to, you know, what Emily just said about the music, I think, and, and what you, you know, sort of asked us there, you know, just getting the right sentiment. And uh, there have been times, certainly, while uh, creating the various mixes where we say, that's not the right music. Um, that's not the sentiment. And, you know, really thinking about what is the fitting music that, right, captures the mood, uh, you know, what it was like, um, you know, just to feel that feeling. And also we use music as scene changes or letting an idea sink in, you know, let the music play out in some spots. So the listener has time to just sort of process what they've heard. Um, and yeah, music, I mean, Emily and I both love music. Um, it's, you know, sort of the you know creative aspect of doing this. And um, like Emily said, uh, our composer was is fantastic, and um, you know we're really grateful for the music that he was able to come up with. And on the besides music, um, just again flow and content, and uh, making sure that when we listen to drafts, you know that was that clear because unlike reading, you know podcast listeners are often doing something else while listening, and they might not go back. You know you can you have that ability to go back. But, you know, it's like once that, uh, you know, once those words are said, you know, they sink in. And so we want to make sure that they're clear and that it just keeps the listener feeling like they can keep moving on with the mix. Now, you've done a number of other projects. You did one on book banning in prisons. You've done one on nurses. You did one on vaccination decisions, financial issues in Pennsylvania. You've done podcasts with art museums, book publishers. I've seen others referenced as well. What's the work that you've done that you're most proud of? Thanks, you know, Mark, for, you know, calling out uh, the work that Covenda Media has been uh, fortunate to be part of. We've had wonderful organizational partners um, who we've been able to work with over the years. And so we, we were, you know, honored to, to work on these projects. Um, I think for, for me, two projects come to mind. Stronger Every Day, Healing After Gun Violence uh, is an audio documentary that Emily and I worked on with Tashawn Struther. Uh, she's the mother of an adult gun violence survivor. And we connected with Tashawn uh, through the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting. And they have a credible messenger project where people with lived experience are paired with journalists to create different types of media projects. And uh, Tashawn really wanted to make an audio documentary about surviving gun violence and what it all entails often a narrative you don't hear about. Um, you know, she said, yes, people die, but a lot more people survive too. You know, in, in Philadelphia, we do have a pretty significant gun violence problem. And so we were able to work with Tashawn over multiple months and uh, I think more than six months actually. And we it was during the pandemic. And so we spent, I think, more than a dozen hour long Zoom sessions with Tashawn talking 
uh, similar to how Emily described our process, where, you know, seeing what she was up for talking about, prompting, and just letting her process, you know, what had happened to her son and what her experience as a caregiver, um, you know, has been like. Uh, so that was, an, I thought, an incredible project I've been part of. And we also, Emily and I really came together through our collaboration on Grapple, uh, which was the podcast based in Pennsylvania about municipally distressed communities. It was part of Keystone Crossroads, which was a public radio consortium in Pennsylvania at the time. It was supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And we had a wonderful team of reporters across the state, and we did a combination of narrative and Q&A episodes. And, you know, we were with threw our hearts into it. Uh, we even won an award. Uh, and that's how, you know, Emily and I, we collaborated closely on a, a two-part series uh, for that podcast. And um, we wanted to collaborate again. So definitely, Gapple has a special place in my heart. Yeah, I would echo Stephanie that I, I certainly grapple for multiple reasons is, is work that I'm I'm proud of, including the fact that it was something that was out of my comfort zone in a lot of ways. And whenever you're growing or stretching stretching professionally, I would that's something to be to be proud of and take note of. I would say the same is true about Stronger Every Day as far as the credible messenger format, not something that I worked with before that either of us had and then launching obscured i'm very proud of us for launching obscured and simultaneously we've had a project on being biracial i was the editor and fact checker on that and was my first time in that role for a long-form co-hosted podcast and i'm really just incredibly proud to have played a small role in helping the co-hosts darylise lyons and malcolm burnley create a truly brilliant series that I hope your listeners will check out. It's called On Being Biracial. I'll include links to all of those in the uh, show notes. For specifically for Obscured and for the current series that you're on, who's your audience? I would say our audience are people who seek long-form journalism outside the daily news cycle, that they want high-quality reporting enlightening conversations where they can learn about a topic or an angle of an issue that they might not have known before, as we referenced earlier. And I think for the most part, an audience who's interested in public policy, really understanding the underlying context, the relevant histories, and the potential solutions when applicable. And Emily and I joke, I mean, we we are the avatar listeners of our podcast because that's the kind of journalism we like to consume. And I agree with Emily, obviously very proud of launching Obscured as we're getting it off the ground. It was a long, it was a multi-year effort in the making and it's great to be here. Yeah, I was going to ask how long, how long this all took to go from initial idea to finished product. Well, we really, I mean, and for any listeners who really want the full details, we do have our story on our website. And as one of the episodes setting up Obscurity, we did the launch with a few episodes that were not part of From Words to Weapons and then started that series rollout. And this is one of the earlier ones where we talk about that, along with Stephanie revisiting some of her reporting about censorship in prisons. But we met one another initially in 2011, and I don't think we thought that we would collaborate in this way at that time. 
but it was through grapple as stephanie mentioned that we really connected and i was freelancing for her while i was still in public media and we started talking about it even back then which was in 2015 no later a little later just 17 17 oh well, we started yeah. talking about it mm-hmm. yesterday right? yeah. okay, 2017 yeah. so yeah we just to kind of pick up we said could we do this type of journalism again and especially as we think about the consolidation of the of media outlets and that a week thinking about weekly newspapers folding on an ongoing basis and news gaps uh, and excuse me and, and coverage gaps widening and to be able to do this kind of work it t- does take time and we thought could there be a model to be dedicated to stories that don't get attention so we started thinking about that the pandemic was a very good time for us to be thinking about it and we were able to get up and running to incubate the idea for obscured starting in january of 2021 so that is when it officially officially started but it was several years before that there was a lot of brainstorming and thinking how do you define success good question success could be about downloads that's certainly a very important metric in podcasting we're interested in the obscured getting more attention and, and more listeners finding it but i think oftentimes for me and emily might have some additional opinions here when our sources express that we understood the nuances of the issue that we covered and that we were able to articulate to a broader audience getting that feedback is a success that we we were able to get the story right in in that regard and so that's always gratifying to hear from sources in that regard and i would also say not that we're setting out to do this with Obscured, but I, another success would be a policymaker listening to our content and, and taking that into consideration, moving the needle forward in some way. And that that maybe could happen with Obscured, but it, we won't know until we hear about that. I mean, I think but, Stephanie yeah. pretty much, yeah, she pretty much covered all of all of the bases really on that. And I think that there's an internal component of it too where, and this is a high bar, as you both probably know, um, it's rare to, to feel like really good <laughs> about a piece of work. But I think that we are, are our own worst critics and feel like something could always be better. But when it's pretty much like you are, you feel like you've captured a lot of perspectives, you've brought together information in a way that you haven't seen other people do that sheds new light on something that's very relevant. I think when you actually get there and you feel that good about something that it was it was truly complete and your best effort and your your best work that that is another measure of success for me. What are the journalism issues that you're most passionate about? You kind of alluded to a couple of what I'm guessing some of them will be already. I mean, I do think giving journalists the time and resources to do good beat coverage, do good in-depth projects, especially on the local level, and 
pay them sustainably for, for doing that. You know, that unfortunately, as Stephanie alluded to, is becoming increasingly rare. So I think, I think that I'm, I'm passionate about, about that. And then whatever the setup is, the journalist is able to have some work-life balance and not feel like they're going through these cycles of burnout all the time. I think we've managed to avoid that here. Yes. That I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, everything Emily said, I think that's right. And I think we've been cognizant of, given that we're a two-person team to we're grateful for the experiences we had that got us to this point, but also how to uh, sustain ourselves going forward and doing this type of work. And many days it feels like we're in a startup and it's really intense and we're going at a pace and there are times when we can slow down. So I think to Emily's point that organizations can be cognizant of that pacing for their staff to avoid burnout. You mentioned that it's the two of you largely doing the work on this. What's the hardest part of of being a, a journalist specifically in this role? Well, I would say that we're there's the two of us, and as you've heard us mention, various people who have worked with us as consultants, fact checker and editor. We'll mention. Our Brad Linder, who is an amazing mixer, does a lot of our production work for us and yeah, audio engineering. And so we, we're lucky to have consulting editors and this, this team around us. But at the end of the day, we have to not only do the journalism, but we also have to think about marketing. And we've been fortunate to work with a great podcast marketing firm called Tink. And that's really helped us think about podcasts in a new way in terms of distribution and, and getting the word out there. And just sort of, there's always something, graphic design, what's going on social. We're doing it all. We're a small shop. So there, there's challenge in that, but we, we've, we've learned. We've certainly made mistakes along the way. And we're, we're learning from them. And we're, I think Emily and I are both committed to continuous improvement and how we can get better over time. But yeah, I think it's being a journalist plus. I think we were when we worked in sort of legacy media organizations, we were fortunate that those organizations had divisions devoted to marketing and design and distribution. So in this case, you know, not unlike maybe some others journalists you've had on the show who are kind of bootstrapping along the way. So lastly, I purposely saved this for the end rather than for the beginning, even though it kind of represents the beginning. Uh, what goes into naming something Kuvenda? Well, we talked about being Greek early on. So it does come from the Greek. Kuvenda means talk, chat, or conversation. And as I started out saying, I spent a lot of time around family members telling stories. I did want to honor my Greek heritage in this way. And I definitely equate my grandmother with Kuvenda because that's what I spent a lot of time around was a lot of Kuvenda. And I, it also sounds good, I think. It does. Does, does. does anyone ever know what it means? 
No, and that's the fun part. So it's obscure. (laughs) Exactly. It it fits well. All right. So the show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Can each of you pick a journalist or journalism organization, you can pick more than one, that you would like to salute for their good work? I would would just go back to Darylise Lyons and Malcolm Burnley, the co-hosts on Being Biracial. And I suppose I was part of that team, but it really was a very small role compared to what they what they did, the work that they did, they conducted more than 30 interviews and really created, as I said, a truly brilliant finished product and a series that I would encourage your listeners to check out. I, I think that's a great recommendation. And I would also recommend the Philadelphia Center for Gun Violence Reporting, the project that we worked with to Sean Strother on. Jim McMillan started the center and uh, has created a very expansive program there and a lot of innovative work that's happening in the journalism space about gun violence reporting and how to change the narrative and and Dr. Jessica Beard who is a trauma surgeon in Philadelphia who's leading a lot of the research efforts there. Stephanie Marutis, Emily Previty, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck with your production. I would certainly recommend that people check out Obscured and From Words to Weapons. Thanks so much for having us on. We really appreciated the opportunity to talk with you. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com. <laughs>